I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm afraid it's just me today, Mariana, but I have a very exciting episode for you. This week, I sat down with Philip Bowring to talk about his new book published this week called The Making of Modern Philippines. This was a very timely conversation as Philip is extremely knowledgeable about the country, which is heading to the polls to pick, rather elect, a new president on May 9th next week. And so we had a conversation that is hopefully going to be useful for our listeners to better understand some of the dynamics at play in the current electoral race, but also giving a glimpse of the politics, the economy, and the society in the Philippines. So a little bit more about Philip. He's a journalist based in Hong Kong and was the editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review magazine for almost two decades. He has published with other known outlets, such as the South China Morning Post and the Wall Street Journal. And he's the author of two other books. As for the most recent one that I've just mentioned, I had a chance of, of reading it earlier. And I would describe for the listeners who haven't had a chance to, to pick it up as a book that can be divided in two parts. The first one offers this social political history of the Philippines, starting with the earlier colonial period and coming all the way to the present and the part where it picks off since the Philippines' independence sort of evaluates or tracks the record of the different presidents, their legacies and policies, and impacts uh, on the country. The second part of the book then delves deeper into some of the contemporary issues, or what Philip dubs in his subtitle, Pieces of a Jigsaw State. I found particularly interesting reading about remittances, the role that they play being 9% of the GDP of the country, illicit commerce, the question of federalism, and the role of the left as being able to offer a viable alternative to the politics that are embroiled in family dynasties. But more of that later, as you'll be able to hear from the expert himself. So Philip and I talked about how his book can help Uh, navigate the, the presidential elections. Philip offered a context and insights into some of the most pressing problems for the country from agriculture to, ed to education. And we also touched upon the outgoing president, so President Rodrigo Duterte's presidency and the legacies uh, slash achievements or policies that he's been able to enact in the last six years. Lastly, we were also able to touch upon the prospects for change and their current candidates and the expected winners, which we hope will find useful as the country prepares to elect a new president and vice president. With that being said, let's have a listen. Now I'm joined by Philip Boring. Hi, Philip. Thanks so much for being here today. How are you? Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. So I would love for us to just cut to the chase and talk about your new book coming out, I believe, this week, The, the Making of the Modern Philippines. It's a very timely publication date, as you know, <laughs> with the elections uh, in the Philippines taking place next week on May 9th. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a conversation uh, about your book and how some of the dynamics that you talk about sort of play out in the, in the electoral race that we're seeing right now. So I've read the book. I highly recommend it. It's very digestible and, and easy to, to follow. 
My first question to you is, how does your book help the readers understand national politics and the role of family dynasties? Well, I like to think that it uh, shows a continuity of, of history in a way. I mean, this is a, a curious country in the sense that it is of a sort of Malay-Austronesian background, culturally and uh, linguistically. And yet it was ruled by Spain for so long and then ruled by the United States. So they left some uh, rather remarkable and rather contrasting legacies, the Spanish legacy being now primarily seen through the, uh, through the church, the Catholic church, the American legacy being seen perhaps through the uh, political system. So this is a rather sort of complicated historical background, rather unlike other former colonial territories, in the sense that this was something which lasted for nearly 500 years. So it is a very different situation from what, for example, you would find in uh, other colonized places in the region, such as Vietnam or, or uh, Indonesia. So it's more complicated, and it's also more complicated by geography, because there are so many islands, uh, and it's also complicated by language. I mean, all the languages are Austronesian languages, Malay-type languages, but they do differ, and people still use uh, different languages, not just dialects. And English is uh, sort of lingua franca, the uh, language of, of uh, a lot of government and so on. But that in itself creates a divide, because... Uh, you know, not everybody is very fluent in English. At the same time, a lot of education is in English and, and could be one of the reasons why educational standards aren't particularly high compared with uh, other parts of uh, Southeast Asia because language is an issue. And uh, Filipino, or, uh, Filipino or Tagalog, although it is nominally the national language, uh, has a struggle against the, you know, the fact that regional languages, Visayans, uh, Buwana, uh, and so on, uh, uh, Ilocano, uh, are still uh, very widely used. And, and uh, have, uh, the country is, in that sense, although it has a strong identity in many ways, also has this uh, division uh, caused by uh, geography and by uh, linguistic differences. So it's a sort of complicated historical background, which I think you know, does need to be understood if one's thinking about why is it that dynasties are so important in the politics of, uh, of the Philippines. And of course, we see it in this election now where the leading candidates for president and vice president, as far as we know, are uh, Bongbong Marcos, the uh, sole son of uh, the late President Ferdinand Marcos, uh, and uh, Sarah Duterte for vice president was the daughter of the current president. And that, of course, mirrors politics throughout the country. The House of Representatives, which is elected on a, on a, on a local basis or primarily on a local basis, is roughly 85% taken up by people from dynasties. And uh, you will see the same in uh, provincial governors, in mayors, and so on and so forth. So uh, there is a structure there which is uh, quite uh, old and quite uh, uh, persistent. And um, you know that fortifies, or is fortified by, the geography. So there's, uh, if, if you want to go to the roots of this, well, 
you, you have to go partly back into uh, Spanish colonial times with land ownership and so on and the emergence of some major landowning families, uh, particularly in central Luzon and in, in the Visayas, who have became important in politics even in the Spanish period and remain so. And then when you have the Americans after their uh, war uh, of conquest, felt a need fairly early on to localize as much as possible. And then you, the way of localization they saw was to install uh, leading local families in positions of political power. And there, many of them have remained now for, you know, for 100 years. Now, of course, they have also intermarried, not only among each other, but among newer dynasties. I mean, for example, Bong uh, Bong Marcos is married to an even older and wealthier family, or well, formerly wealthier family. Uh, of course, nobody is probably as wealthier than the Marcos family these days, but uh, there clearly are people like, for example, uh, Lucio Tan, who was one of the richest people in, in the country. He grew up as a protégé of, of, of Marcos and, and uh, undoubtedly uh, fueled a lot of Marcos's uh, political efforts and uh, survived the transition, survived the downfall of Marcos and uh, quite likely yeah, the Marcos family still owns quite a lot of Lucio Tan's um, very large businesses, which, you know, uh, cut across banking, airlines, tobacco, property, you know, you name it. Um, but there are several others who trace their mm-hmm. wealth origins back to the um, Marcos era. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many different things that you've that you've raised there, both in terms of, of economics, but also this, this the structure that you've mentioned that has persisted. I remember this line on the in the book where you talk about uh, democracy has flourished, but in an, an outdated structure. Uh, and I thought it was such a, a concise way uh, to put it. So you started mentioning the current election and, and the candidates. And before we get into it, I wondered if we could just backtrack to 2016. Um, as you know, uh, a presidential election uh, took place. And among rather more obvious choices, uh, Rodrigo Duterte um, slowly built his national popularity and eventually won the election with about 40% of the popular vote. So I wanted to ask briefly, how do you think he got there? He was quite new on the on the national scene. Well, he was quite new on the national scene, but he was very well known already. I mean, he was, you know, mayor of, of Davao for so many years, and, and Davao's third largest city, and he was a very noisy and, and, and prominent uh, mayor. And so he he was able to translate this into, I'm a sort of a new man, I, I'm a new broom, I can sweep away a lot of things, I can I can deal directly with issues, I, I'm a tough guy, I've you know, I've got a gun in my hand and, and I'm really going to make the country work and get rid of uh, criminals and so on. I mean, a lot of it was uh, what he did in, in, in Davao was actually very nasty, but people didn't necessarily realize what, what had happened in Davao with the you know, extrajudicial killings and so on. Davao itself, was, as a city, was reasonably successful, but I, I would say no more successful than, say, Cebu, which is a you know, similar-sized uh, city um, over the same period. Uh, but uh, Duterte certainly presented himself as a strong man, as a as a non-elitist, 
that, of course, was, was simply untrue because he came from a, himself an elite family. His father had been a member of, a, of Marcus's cabinet. His father had, had been the governor of, of, of the whole of, of, of Davao. So, I mean, he, he wasn't new on the block, but he was sort of a rough, ready, tough guy image, you know, something, you know, something out of Hollywood. And uh, I think he, that there was a lot of appeal. And, you know, he was up, up against a candidate who was perfectly competent and respectable, and, but, you know, didn't, didn't spark any popular support. He was just really more of the same. And obviously, you know, Philippines is always looking for, for a new a saviour, somebody to, you know, make things happen, to, to you know, get them out of poverty. Uh, there is a sense in, in the Philippines that uh, the country has been, you know, something of a failure and that somehow or other it needs new leadership all the time to, to, to drag it forward. You know, it has underperformed. Other countries in the region, say Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia, um, and, and people are sort of vaguely aware of this, and they're aware of it also directly, not only through poverty, but from the fact that uh, so many of them have to rely on remittances from, you know, the millions of Filipinos uh, now working overseas. That's not a new factor, but it's certainly a factor which... Uh, tells you something about the problems that the country has faced for quite a number of years and, and hasn't been very successful in, in, in dealing with. So there's always an appeal that for somebody who can somehow promise better in the future and that uh, the existing system is not working. Uh, on the other hand, people still enjoy the, the, the politics. I mean, you know, elections are very popular in the Philippines. Everybody... You know, very high turnout rates, despite the fact that nothing very much changes. So the you know, high turnouts, not just for the presidential election, but you have at the same time, you know, elections for senators, for congressmen, for mayors, for governors, etc., etc. So it's it's a there's tremendous popular participation in an election, even though much of it is semi-predetermined. You know, there may be a change. In, in one province or one mayorship, it'll only be most likely from one leading family to another one, because you have a lot of you know, local competition between two and maybe three families, and, and they you know repeat themselves, and then one will come back, and then you'll get one who's a mayor, and his wife is a you know is the governor, or or the son is the you know, vice governor, or whatever it is, you know. So, the elections, you know, always attract a tremendous amount of attention, and and people are aware of what's going on and, uh, and so on. But I think this time, uh, what you're seeing, I mean, Bong Bong Marcos is is not a dynamic figure by any stretch of the imagination, and I mean, he's done really very little. He's been uh, governor of Ilocos, where he comes from. And yeah, he's he's been in Congress, but I mean, he he's, he hasn't really made a mark. He's, his mark is his name. And I think what you're seeing this time around, you're seeing the coalition of these two big names. You've got Marcos in alliance with Sarah Duterte, so the current president. So you've got these two presidential dynasties aligned against somebody, you know, well, the main opposition figure, Lenny Robredo, who doesn't have that background. Absolutely. And 
just to, to the point, because you mentioned uh, Sara Duterte, and uh, I was, it's just making me think about how uh, the politics of hope, that people keep coming back to the elections and keep hoping for, for the politicians to deliver some sort of change. But you did mention earlier that Duterte had like this sort of nasty record from his days as a mayor of the city. And I was wondering uh, if we could just touch upon briefly on his on his war on drugs, right? Uh, it has been particularly deadly and it has been criticizing for acting as this cover for widespread extrajudicial killings of political rivals, critical journalists, and, and the list goes on. And so just thinking of his presidential term more broadly, obviously his, his daughter is on the vice presidential ticket. But what are the, the main legacies of his time in office? Was, was it a popular presidency? What, what sorts of things would stand out to you that he has achieved? In terms of popularity, I mean, Duterte himself remains popular. But in terms of achievements, it's, it's actually rather difficult to you know, be very precise. I mean, he started off with really two... No, three programs, I suppose. One was the anti-drug campaign with the, all the extrajudicial killings. It's not at all clear that that's really been successful in wiping out drugs in the Philippines because it's you know, still a huge amount of you know, small-time drug abuse going on, uh, methamphetamines and so on. But I don't, think, you know, that, I don't think you're going to see that continue. Whoever, you know, whoever wins the next election, the, the, I don't think that the campaign is, is going to carry on. The second thing he did was to try and cozy up to China by basically uh, ignoring the 2016 uh, Court of uh, Arbitration findings, which uh, basically backed the Philippines every way against uh, China in terms of the uh, rights in the South China Sea. And Duterte kind of ignored that, really, and said, you know, we must be closer friends with China and China can help us develop economically and promise lots of investment and so on. I think, you know, looking back, people will say, well, actually, not very much actually materialized. Uh, the Chinese have continued to increase their presence in the South China Sea and the waters which are uh, not only claimed by the Philippines, but are acknowledged uh, by the you know uh, by the court, by the court of arbitration in in the Hague, uh, as being Philippine um, exclusive economic zone. So I think you know you, you can see that Duterte's foreign policy, which was driven to a large extent by resentment against the U.S. I mean, he's always had a resentment against the U.S., which some people you know find. A little difficult to understand. It certainly exists, and probably isn't really reflected in in the country generally. Uh, in fact, the, you know, the U.S. remains highly highly popular, and uh, and China has become less and less popular because of its actions in the South China Sea, and also the fact that a lot of the promised investment never never materialized. So, so I think you're going to see that the pro-China policy has been fading anyway, even, even under Duterte, uh, partly under, I think, pressure from the, uh, uh, from the military. I mean, the military really is, is suspicious of China, wants to do more to try and protect uh, Philippine sea borders uh, against China. And you know the the whole situation of, uh, in Southeast Asia has has, has changed. So you know China, uh, just Philippines finds itself rather, uh, I wouldn't say isolated, but the other countries in the region, which also have sea issues with China, and, and notably Vietnam, Malaysia, and to some extent Indonesia as well, 
don't really think that Philippine policy has, has uh, helped at all. In fact, they think that they rather threw away the advantages that they'd been given by the 2016 uh, uh, court judgment. So I think you, you'll see you know, that policy sh- shifting a bit as well. If you see the next president continue Duterte's policies with relation to China, which was something you, you were getting into just, just I, I, I think it's uh, I think he'll soften them. I mean I think it would be if Robredo won, she would have a, a much more openly, you know, critical policy towards China. Bong Bong's will have a, a sort of a slightly shaded sort of policy, kind of Duterte minus, because he's going to come under a lot of pressure from the military. He doesn't have a strong personality. He doesn't doesn't appear to have strong views on on anything very much. Which Duterte did have strong views and and made them very clear. So I think that that that's uh, you're going to see a, a shift there. It'll be yeah, it won't be very obvious, but but uh, I mean that's assuming that that uh, Bong Bong wins, which now seems pretty likely. But yeah, you can you can't be sure. Um, but as I say, I, I think there will be a, a change of, of emphasis. Won't be too obvious, but uh, it will be. Uh, it will be that. Mm-hmm. It's part of a trend which has been going on anyway. Yeah, because you know the, the the guilt is off China today. I mean, you know, the, China the great leader, everything. You know, really admiring China. But people don't believe that anymore. It, 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 you know, the attitudes have changed. Now, the third thing was his build, build, build program, which was to spend a lot of money on improving Philippines' dreadful infrastructure. This was a good slogan, and I think it, uh, it wasn't so much new, but he, 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 he made it the slogan, and he certainly continued an increase in infrastructure spending on, on you know, uh, roads and ports and, and uh, other, other infrastructure. Uh, which was desperately needed. Uh, that had been already going on under Noinoi Kino, his predecessor, but uh, he made a, a bigger noise about it. And this, I think, he also thought that this was going to bring in a lot of Chinese money. It did bring in some. Actually, it brought in more Japanese money than, than it did Chinese. But uh, that was a, a, a good program. Um, his other economic policies were basically just to carry on the same as before, which was the fairly conservative fiscal policy attempt to gradually open up uh, some industries to uh, greater foreign investment, foreign competition. And I think that would be regarded in by many people as eventually finally getting through Congress uh, a number of uh, investment liberalization measures, which have yet really to come to fruition in terms of actual money, but uh, do offer you know, the next uh, administration you know, the prospect of getting more foreign investment at a time when you know, foreign investment is getting harder to, to, to find. I suspect that economic policy under the next president will not change very much, except the fact that you have had two and a half years nearly really of lockdowns and COVID and, uh, and so on. And that has had a huge, uh, not an economic cost, but a huge cost to the uh, to the finances. So the finances, which were in you know, quite reasonable shape, but the national finances, you know, three years ago, and now they're not a cause for you know, immediate concern, but they do provide 
a sort of a, a limit to what any new president can do in the way of further increasing investment in the infrastructure or doing something about the uh, problems of, of other aspects of, of the economy. There's a couple more questions that I would like to, to ask, or at least one big question, which is, uh, as you approach the end of the book, you sort of start to look at how how can things change? What are what are the alternatives? Uh, what are the things that can happen? And with the election taking place, something that that really that I really noticed that you mentioned was about uh, the role of the left. How you mentioned that 35 years after the authoritarian rule of President Marcos, there has not been a, a, con a coherent moderate platform from which a viable alternative on leftist politics could have emerged. Uh, and I was wondering if it doesn't sound like this is something that's going to take place in, in these elections. But what can the next president deliver for the Philippines? Uh, and if there is a viable alternative? Yeah, well, the problem is really since from the time of Marcos, the declaration of martial law, there haven't really been political parties in the Philippines. I mean, there are a whole lot of parties, but they, they come and go and, and people join and, and leave. So this is sort of strengthened dynastic politics because parties have been so weak. As for the left, you have a situation where, I mean, the Communist Party, the NPA, is still active in certain parts of the country. That in itself is a reflection of how poorly governed some parts of the country have been uh, and how, how many people in many rural areas have, have suffered so much from, from poverty and, and uh, oppression, which, which still goes on. The, the problem for the left is, you know, A, you've got this association with communism and the NPA on the one hand. On the other, those who attempt to find a, a kind of a bridge uh, between the extreme left and the, and the sort of moderate left often find themselves the target of, of uh, harassment and sometimes of extrajudicial killings. I mean, and that is not something which just started under Duterte. I mean, it's carried on under Duterte. Uh, but it, it certainly existed under a little bit under under Aquino and Norma Aquino and, and and a lot under Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo. Um, so this attempt to sort of get rid of leftists in in uh, particularly in in rural areas, you know, the champions of peasant rights and champions of of indigenous or so-called indigenous minorities. I mean, that's another issue that, that I think in, needs further exploration, but it's too complicated to get into just now. But uh, so the moderate left is constantly being discouraged by killings and, and, and oppression of one sort or another. Meanwhile, there is no moderate left party of any substance. And that In Congress, I mean, there's uh, this so-called party list, uh, which is part of the non-dynastic part of the, of, of the non-regional part of the Congress, is supposed to reflect the interests of, you know, you know unions and teachers and taxi drivers and seamen. And, but most of these uh, positions have actually been taken over by uh, members of the existing political elite. So there are very few genuinely leftist people in in the Congress, and those that are, I mean, you know, have found themselves, you know, uh, facing dangers at some point you know, because you know, extrajudicial killings of people who are claimed to be 
associates of, of the Communist Party or the MPA uh, suddenly, you know, just uh, eliminated. I just wanted to ask a, a last question, Wern. Obviously, you conclude the book talking about this this problem of governance because you mentioned earlier that the the election seems like it's going. And if you look at, at the at the results of what is expected in, uh, up until now uh, from the polls, uh, that Marcos and uh, Duterte see, Duterte Carpio seem to have this overwhelming lead uh, uh, over their closest rivals. So if if Marcos Jr. wins. Do you think that he'll undo the progress towards tackling some of the issues in the book, including the problem of governance? The problem of governance is is a very deep one, and uh, you know, of course, it starts with, uh, in a way, with, with dynasties, but it also includes the weakness of the central bureaucracy and the strength of local governments, which are often not very efficient. Like, you know, the country is divided into far too many provinces, and and, and uh, when even when you have a good policy of actually managing to implement it, there is an administrative issue here as well as a political issue, which relates to the domination, the dominance of families at the local level. That's not something which is easily tackled, particularly by somebody who owes a whole you know a political existence to the concept of dynasty and. I mean, if you look at Ilocos, uh, where Marcos is from, I mean, the whole family is is in in politics and has been there for 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 decades. I mean, going back to Ferdinand Marcos's own father. So I mean, it's uh, these things are it's difficult to see quite how these things are going to change. All you can hope for is that some things do change in terms of implementation of, of policies. And also something which we haven't mentioned, Philippines has been burdened, uh, if I may use that word, by a very rapid population growth, you know, particularly for a country which doesn't have vast you know, amount of agricultural land. That rate of growth of population is slowing, and eventually Philippines may be better off than some other countries which have, uh, you know, will then be seeing, seeing declining populations because... Uh, Fertility rates fell a long time ago. Philippines' fertility rates are still well over uh, replacement. So in a way, I mean, if you think really longer term, that may be to the country's advantage. But it, for now, it is a problem of how you usefully employ still growing population, uh, how you improve, you know, how much, where you're going to find the resources to improve your education system so that more people can take part in the modern you know the modern economy yeah i was going to say it sounded like a hopeful note but but now i'm not so sure if you're if you're more skeptical uh, than than hopeful filipinos overseas have done so well that one has to think that sooner or later filipinos in the philippines will get the chance that uh, you know their more entrepreneurial colleagues who have taken advantage of jobs in you know all over the world and done very well they're being held back uh, you know by the situ- you know political administrative situation in the philippines which is not conducive to uh, entrepreneurship on on that sort of scale uh, but that can change and i think that will have to change because uh, the situation you know is potentially quite volatile uh, so change uh, w- will happen Quite when it'll happen, 
I can't predict, but it's. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the next under the next administration. But uh, maybe after that, we'll see uh, you know, deeper and uh, more fundamental change in in the country in a way which gives Filipinos a chance to to be as entrepreneurial as they really are. That would be the dream. I'm also, after having read the book and feeling such a, a story of, of resilience and, and hope and so many different things that could uh, potentially be put at work for, for the Philippines, uh, I hope that is that is the way that it is going. And you do talk about this steady and stable economic growth. So from 2000 to 2019, which which I hope we'll, we'll keep seeing. But anyways, this is this is all we have time for. Thank you so much, Philip, for, for giving us such brilliant thoughts and sharing a bit of your in-depth knowledge of the country with, with our listeners. I think it's it's a great primer for the elections and it was great having you today. Uh, thank you. That's it for this episode. We hope that you have enjoyed it and we'll be back soon with another one. In the meantime, there are several ways in which you can keep in touch with Chatham House. You can check our website to see more about the research, priorities and outputs that we're currently working on. And also you can follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. And you can use these to get in touch or leave us a review to tell us which episodes you've enjoyed or topics that you think we should be covering on undercurrents in the future. We would love to hear from you and that's it. See you in the next one. <laughs>